Now, we are going to take a second to look at Jesus walking on the water before we take communion together. So, we are in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is the second uh, story in the chapter. So, like if you weren't here last week, um, or if you just, you know, had a busy week and you forgot, let's review a little bit on where we're at in John 6. Jesus and his disciples headed up to the hill country. They're in the mountains because they're trying to take a rest. They've been doing a lot of busy ministry, a lot of heavy lifting. But the followers of Jesus, the crowd, as it were, they find Jesus up there in the hills and in the mountains outside of Galilee, outside of this place called Bethsaida in particular, outside of the villages. And they follow Jesus and the 12 disciples up there to that hill, to that mountainside. And the crowd has simply gotten gigantic. The Bible says that there was 5,000 men. Many speculate that that's intentional. Um, they said men on purpose and indicating there's women and children there as well. So the side of this hill has essentially become a stadium. A st like, like the Bon Secures Wellness Arena Stadium, like that big. Tons of people, right? Masses sitting there. Jesus, though he's tired, he's exhausted with the 12 disciples, he begins to teach. And he teaches, and he teaches some more, and he teaches, you know, this, and he teaches that. And it kind of keeps going and going until about dinner time. That's when he and the disciples look up and they realize they not only have a big crowd, they have a hungry crowd. So you know the story. Jesus tears apart five loaves, two fish. It's the famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, a little lesser known part of the story is found in John 6. If you look up in verses 14 and 15, you'll see that the crowd there gets kind of out of hand, out of control. After they eat, their energy is uh, perked back up. And they want to literally take Jesus by force and make him king. Not like their true king, not their saving king, not their, you know, king of kings, the king of God's kingdom. They want to like literally like take this guy in their arms down to, you know, city hall at Jerusalem and like set him in Herod's office for him to, you know, like dethrone Herod, take his seat right there, right then, and take over the region. That's the plan of the crowd, and they're riling each other up to do this, cheering whatnot. You can imagine what it might have been like. There's unrest because they want Jesus to go down and to take over for Caesar. They want him to be the king of the region, but he didn't come to be a king of a region. He came to reach the entire world through his salvation, his gospel, his blood, his death, and his resurrection. He didn't come to be a dictator. He came to die. And so Jesus makes a plan to get out of there and to um, exit, as it were, from in front of this huge crowd. And what he does is he sends his disciples one direction. 
this side of the Sea of Galilee. And he says, get in a boat, travel to Capernaum, I'll meet you there, I'll be there, you'll see me. He goes a different direction to a different hill, to a different mountain in that area so that he can pray and commune with the first member of the Trinity, God the Father. So we got Jesus on one side of the sea, his disciples on the other end of the sea. This is after dinner, after the feeding of the 5,000. And the plan is, all, he, all they know, all he said is, we'll meet up. So let's check in and see how the plan is going. Look at verse 16. John 6, 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Okay, good obedience, guys. Check that off the list. Step one. 17, verse 17. They got into a boat, and they, head, they headed across the sea to Capernaum. Again, this is a really solid start for the 12 disciples. Hats off for following directions. Should be smooth sailing from here on out, right? Right? Um, let's keep reading. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Uh, he did say he would see us. I guess that means he'll meet us in Capernaum, like in the morning, right? Like when the sun rises, I'm sure we'll see him on the shore, right? We'll get back together. Yeah, I'm sure that's how it's going to go. For now, let's just lay down in this little boat, try to get some sleep. We'll take turns rowing to the other side. Sounds like a plan, boys. What could go wrong? Verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Oh, that could go wrong. A breeze turning into a gust and a light rocking back and forth, uh, turning into almost capsizing, right? A drizzle of rain turning into a downpour. That's pretty scary. They're wondering, like, what's going to happen? What happens next? What if we never make it to Capernaum? What, is this the part of the plan? What's the plan? And I bet they had a few guesses, but this next verse probably was not one of them. Verse 19, when they had rowed about 25, 30 furlongs, which is about three to four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. This is one of those verses where you want to go like, did I read, let me, did I read that right? Like, let me double check the spelling on this. Like, is that what I, is that what it says? Look at verse, uh, verse again. It says they were walking, sorry, they had rowed about three or four miles and they saw Jesus walking on the sea to their boat. I mean, that's not a line you read every day. It just kind of pops out of nowhere in verse 19. Like, imagine reading this for the first time. Like, perhaps imagine that you're in some country, some remote area, and they just translated the New Testament, or even just translated the book of John only into your language, and you're like, wait, what? Jesus walks on water? Jesus walks on water. All right, that's pretty interesting. And what also is interesting in that same verse, is that they were frightened. 
It's an interesting verse. Jesus is walking on water, and they're freaking out. And it makes some sense if you try to, you know, put yourself in their shoes. I mean, how would you react like this summer? You go down to the lake, you know, you get up, you get a cup of coffee, you go out to your chair. There's the lake, and someone's taking a jog on the lake. It's a weird day. That's kind of freaky. That doesn't happen all the time. And, and it makes you take a, you know, a double take, a triple take. For the disciples, they see Jesus walking on the water. It gives them the willies. You see, what the disciples think that we have here is not a Sunday school story. What they think is happening is a ghost story. And that's a true story. If you read it in Matthew and Mark, where it also records this story, you will see that when the disciples first looked out into the storm and they saw some figure that looked like Jesus, but it was walking on the water through crashing waves and through pouring rain, it literally says in the Bible that they thought they were seeing a ghost, the Greek word for spirit or phantom. I mean, the they, they know they're not hallucinating, right? They know they, they, this is real. This is not a dream, right? Like we had bread. We had fish. No mushrooms, right? This is real. This is not a hallucination. And it looks like Jesus, but he's out on the water. And it can't be Jesus because last time we checked, Jesus is fully man and men don't walk on water. There has to be some other explanation. Whoever is walking towards us has to be something other than a man. And it is someone more than a mere man. It's the God-man. But at this point in time, they think it's a ghost. And so, they're frightened. Until they hear some of the most comforting words in the universe. Words you need to hear this morning. Words I need to hear all the time. These are comforting words on a normal day. Could you imagine hearing these words in the storm of the night on the Sea of Galilee? Verse 20, verse 21 says this. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad. The tables have turned. They went one end of the emotional spectrum to the other. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Man, what an amazing couple of verses of relief and freedom in the presence of Jesus. As Jesus makes his presence known to them, and as Jesus makes his presence known to you, to us, there's this great freedom from fear in his presence Right, I'm not in the hands of death, but I'm in the hands of life. They see this great relief. Good. I'm not in the hands of a demonic spirit. I'm in the hands of the Holy Spirit. There's this great comfort. I'm not just in the middle of a storm with 11 other scaredy cats in the boat. I'm, I'm actually with the Savior. And he, he is greater than the storm. Because I, if I'm one of the 12 disciples, I was just being trampled by all this water, right? The waves crashing into the boat, the rain coming down. The water was trampling me, but I looked out and saw that he, he is trampling on the water, trampling over the water, and he gets into the boat with us, and instead of rocking side to side, we are now safely zooming towards shore according to verse 21. 
That's the second story of John chapter six. That's John the evangelist's version of the story of Jesus walking on water. He gives it six short and simple verses about this scene. Matthew and Mark also tell us this same story, but they go into a lot more detail. John does not include all those details, yet he still finds it important to put this story in here, which is really interesting if you think about it. Because John, it's not like he's just got plenty of ink and plenty of paper. It's not like he's got a printer sitting there, you know, in the Isle of Patmos while he's exiled and writing all this stuff, right? So why does he find it important? Like, he is writing last. Most scholars would agree he's probably familiar with the book of Matthew. He's probably familiar with the book of Mark. He is writing after they wrote. He already knows what they included, so that's why... He includes so much stuff they left out. But here he repeats them, but in a shortened way. He repeats them, but just the highlights. He adds this story to his gospel. Why does he add this story to his gospel? Just with the bare bones details. It's because the two meanings of this story have everything to do with John's favorite topic, and that is the topic of life. Remember, John includes his theme. He tells us at the very end of the book, the very last verse of the book of John, he tells us what he was doing as he wrote all these chapters, these 20 chapters. John 20, verse 31, he says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Life, that's John's favorite topic. He's always talking about life. And when he talks about life, he's talking about eternal life in the future, and he's talking about a powerful Christian life now in the power of Jesus in our day-to-day. And that's why he includes the story, because there's two important meanings to the story, and one has to do with the future, but one also has to do with right here, right now. We'll take the first one first. That's the first meaning of the story, the future one. And it is this. What are we supposed to learn from John's account of Jesus walking on the water? We learn that Jesus is God over creation. He is the God of creation. Amen and amen. Jesus is God over creation. As human beings, once in a while, we have to bow to creation's will. But creation bows to Jesus' will. A hurricane can stop us, but Jesus can stop a hurricane because he is totally sovereign. And this gives us this beautiful, beautiful hope for the future, our future, your future, a very real future. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did some miracles and not others? Right, like, okay, take this feeding of the 5,000 that happened right before this adventure on the sea. Why do you split five loaves and two fish 5,000 different ways? Why not give everybody in the crowd a million bucks, man? They'll never be hungry again. Give them all a Costco in their village, right? Just one denarii for a hot dog and a soda. It's very cheap. Don't you love that Costco cafe? It's worth the membership right there, that little eatery thing right in the front. 
Why not give them something like that? Why, why do this this way? Five loaves, two fish. Why feed them this way and not another? Here's the idea. Jesus did 37 miracles in the four Gospels. And one thing you got to know about each one of those miracles from Jesus is that they serve as pictures into a reality that is to come one day, but has not yet fully happened. Okay, so Jesus, as he starts his ministry, he's got the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches everyone how to pray, and he says, here's the first thing we pray about. You're my follower, here's what you say, here's what you pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. We are supposed to be longing for another kingdom, not this kingdom. We're not supposed to be making Jesus into Caesar. We're not supposed to be making Jesus into Herod. There is a, he's a different king of a different kingdom, not of this world, that is to come. And we pray for that day to come. And we long for that day to come. And we set our minds on things above, not on things of earth. That's what he taught us. And then he started showing us here on earth what his kingdom is like and will be like through his life. So he chose to do miracles that were like this movie trailer. They were like this precursor for what life is going to be like when his kingdom one day is fully realized. He was showing us what life will be like in eternity when all things are restored. So in the new heavens and the new earth that is to come, in eternal life, the reality is not that we're all millionaires in the same way we long to be on this side of heaven. The reality is more like us being fed personally by Jesus, cared for by Jesus, needs being perfectly met by Jesus, not cash, not banks, not government, but Jesus will be our king. Just like the bread and the fish filled up everybody, and they had plenty left over, Jesus will be providing us all we could ever ask or think, and then some, to no end. His miracles are like these windows into heaven and what it'll be like. Okay, so how does walking on the water show us life in the finished kingdom that is to come? It shows us that there will come a day where we are no longer at odds with nature. Ever since Genesis 3, when the grounds themselves were cursed because of sin, because of our sin, when the grounds themselves were cursed, we have been at odds with nature. Now, for some of you, you don't even notice Right? The, the closest you get to being a hunter-gatherer is going to the mall on a Saturday. Right? You do not, you're not in nature enough to even know this, but there are people out there whose lives are defined by being at odds with nature. It's been this way throughout world history in most cultures and in most places. Just to ask an islander who's always worried about the next tsunami wiping out their city. Just ask a Midwesterner right, who's always worried about losing their home to an F5 tornado, or ask 12 guys who fish for a living about storms while they're in a boat. Is this, this dramatic, traumatic issue that's gone on and still goes on in the world. Nature itself is cursed. But here's some good news for us today, that Jesus is turning the whole world right side up again through his gospel. This is actually part of the good news. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 21. He says, for creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. So we have to be careful not to succumb to some idea that heaven is like this eternal choir loft, like you're spending forever in this like kind of beige painted monastery as like some sort of you know, angelic monk, monk forever and ever. The Bible actually talks about eternal life and heaven in terms of it being a city built by God that houses a new and improved garden of Eden, creation as it was meant to be, nature that is healed so it obeys Jesus and it does what it was always meant to do, not scare us and kill us, but rather serve us and strengthen us and bless us with its beauty forever and ever. He is showing us his power to over and to bring back creation to its original state and what that will be like one day as he walks on water in the midst of the storm and then, as he typically does in storms, calls out to it, peace be still, and it ceases. This is really good news. This is what life is like in the kingdom of God. This is the life you will spend most of your existence in. Jordan talked a little bit about us in college, and I actually reminded of something. I remember this one semester in college that was particularly rough for me. Um, It was the spring semester, so it starts in January, goes till May, and it was really tough for a couple of reasons. One is I was like taking the max amount of credits that you're allowed to take, and I had a bunch of extracurricular stuff going on, like my radio show, which was a dope show. But anyway, good show. Anyway, so I had all this extracurricular stuff going on, tons of credits, and it was a particularly difficult and long winter. It was gray and rainy all the time that winter, and I have seasonal affective disorder, which is a real thing, getting that seasonal depression. And I really didn't have any time to even do anything, go anywhere. So I'm under fluorescent lights all the time, right, in these classrooms and dorms and, and whatever, just for like three months on end, just fluorescent lights all the time, gray, rainy skies. And it was really taking a toll and an effect on me. And as the spring came to school, I remember they gave us this thing called a day of rest. I was like, tell me more about this concept. They were like, actually, it's in the Bible. You're going to love it. Wait, d- d- repeat after me, Sabbath. And I was like, let me, let me look into that. I'll, I'll check it out in the Hebrew. And so they gave us a day of rest. And my buddies and I got into my sketchy van. And we somehow made it all the way down to Charleston. We got down to the Isle of Palms. And I, I don't even know how to explain this to you, but as I stepped out onto the sand and the sun was finally shining and I'm looking at the vastness of the ocean, something inside of me was healed in a very dramatic way. And you might be like, well, isn't that like new agey and hippie? No, that's Christian. We love creation in our creator. We worship our creator. And he created all these things and called them very good. And then he put us in the midst of them because it's very good. Perhaps you've had a story like that. I'm not a real outdoorsy guy myself, but some of you love going to the mountains or on a hike or or somewhere around some lake or river. And there's something about that being out there to where the winter just falls off of you. And the stress just dissolves. 
as you're in this spot. Here's what Jesus is showing us as he walks calmly across the waves and gets into the boat, is that one day your entire environment will be like that all the time in his restored and reordered kingdom. One day he's going to put it all back together the way it was, and one day that feeling is going to be the feeling you get in all your spaces and in all your places in the new heavens and the new earth. Nature will no longer be at odds to us, at odds with us, but rather it'll all be under shalom or perfect peace and perfect order. Jesus Christ, the one who created all of these things, major point in the book of John. He starts his gospel with in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and all things were made through him. It was all made for his glory. He is gonna call it all back under his feet. He is going to subject it all to him so that we will never be caught in the storm again. We will be at peace and there will be grace even in experiencing this new and renewed nature itself. That's partly what Jesus is telling us through John and his account of Jesus walking on the water. It's this blessed hope for what the kingdom will be like in our future. There's a second meaning. And that meaning has to do with us right here, right now in 2023. Here's a question. What are the disciples afraid of in this story? Well, they're afraid of the storm. But what is the fear behind the fear of the storm? Drowning. They're afraid of death. Death is the fear behind most of our other fears that you're carrying with you right into this room. I have no doubt we got a lot of really scared people right here. I'll be your leader, because I'm more scared than you are. If you take many of our fears, right, you'll find they're just different versions of the fear of death. The sea, in ancient times, was actually a symbol or a picture of death. Because here's the thing, is that you needed the sea. Everybody had to use it. I mean, fishermen, trade, all of it depended on the sea. Everyone had to face it. So it was the symbol of death. But also, it was a symbol of death because it was known for taking lives suddenly and unpredictably. It's this picture of how death comes and you don't know when and you don't know exactly how. It was a picture of Death, that it could happen at any moment. That was the sea. In fact, I'll prove it to you from the New Testament of the Bible, the same time period and same era, this written by the same guy. If you want to, turn there, just check this out. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. It's the story in Revelation 20, not really a story, I'm sorry, the vision of the final judgment for non-believers at what is called the great white throne because it's Jesus sitting on a great white throne. And you see it in verse 11 where it starts. It says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's Jesus. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne. That's 
Those of you who will not repent, not believe in Jesus. Verse 13, and the sea, very fascinating, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. It's very interesting. So one thing you've got to remember when you read Revelation is that it's a vision, okay? So it's a little different than history, it's prophecy, so it's 100% literal and true, but the idea is that it's a vision of, visions are like what the future will be like. So it's a little bit less 100% in the, uh, it's not reporting, it's more casting. Right? Here's what it'll be like. And it's, it's interesting that in his vision, he sees people coming up. Really, the idea is from the dead. But he says it this way, that they're coming up out of the grave. They're coming up out of hell. They're coming up out of the sea. It's interesting. Like, which one does not belong, right? The grave, hell, very similar. The sea, it's like, wait, the place where uh, Grandpa used to take me in the canoe? Yeah, well, in this day and age, that was synonymous with the grave. He's in a certain sense, not 100%, but a certain sense, poetically, saying the sea, the grave, they're the same thing. They symbolize death, not eternal life. Look at verse, uh, the next, look at chapter 21, verse 1. It's just the next page over. And it might just be a few verses down from there for you. Um, Revelation 21, verse 1. After the final judgment of those who do not believe, then eternal life starts for those who do believe. This is, this is where we will, all who are believers, ultimately go and end. This is a beautiful place called the New Jerusalem, and he starts to describe it in verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. No more sea. Why not? Is the new heaven and the new earth like in the desert? Just some dry place? No, it's a city. It's a city. With the, it holds the garden of God, which takes, I imagine, some sort of divine water to, to grow and to flourish. In fact, it does talk about this in the very next chapter, verse 1. Chapter 22, verse 1, says that there's going to be a river of life that flows from the throne of God. So why here in verse 1 of 21, Revelation 21.1, why does it say in that in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no more sea? Same writer as the book of John. It's because in his mind and in his world, in his vocabulary, he's saying, and there was no more of this symbol of death. He's talking about there being no more unpredictability in the sense of death. He's talking about there being no more surprise death or drowning type death or, or misery of death. The early readers would have read it as there was no more risk. There was no more death. In fact, it goes on to say that in Revelation 21.4. It says, he'll wipe away all tears from our eyes and death shall be no more. The disciples are afraid of dying, and the sea itself that they're dying in is the symbol for the unpredictability and irreversibility of death that everyone's got to face. And then they realize Jesus 
is walking on the water. Jesus is trampling over, walking over death. Where most men sink down and drown, Jesus doesn't. What does that mean? Jesus is sovereign over death. Jesus has overcome death. That's what it means. Death is not a problem for Jesus or his people. Jesus is in the middle of the sea in John chapter six. Later in the book of John, you will see that he's in the middle of death. Jesus Christ, betrayed by Judas, falsely accused by the religious leaders of his day, sentenced to die under Pontius Pilate by crucifixion on the cross. Jesus' death is brutal and it is substitutionary. He doesn't deserve to die. But he dies in our place and he dies for our sin. He exchanges his body and his blood for our souls. On the cross, Jesus' death, it's vicious. But it is also victorious. His death swallows up death. His death is the death of death. And here's how it happens. Jesus finds himself in the middle of death like he did find himself in the middle of the sea. But after three days in the middle of death, on that third day, Jesus walked somewhere even more impressive than out on the water over the sea. He walked out of his own grave. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Here's what Jesus was pointing to in walking on the water before his disciples. And this is why John is so into it and writes it down, even though he has to use up precious space to do so, that Jesus has come to undo the fear that underlines most of our other fears. Jesus has come to trample over death. Just like he walked on the water, and then he got into the boat and ushered his men safely to, to shore, their death, our death, will safely usher us into eternity because of the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. For those who believe death is not so much a sad ending as it is a glorious beginning. You can check this out, it's amazing. Great news for us today. Look at Hebrews 2. Look it up or write it down for later. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Unbelievable, phenomenal news. This is great. This is our faith, and this is glorious and wonderful. This is, this is everything. This is everything. Verse 14 and 15, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he, that's God, himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus took on flesh and blood. Get this that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus frees us from the fear of death. This is what this means. This is what Jesus walking on the water means for you today, Sunday morning. I believe it's June 3rd-ish. Fourth, got it, 2023. Here's what this means for you. 
directly. You, in Christ, do not have to be afraid of death. That you do not have to be afraid of all the things that lead to death. You no longer have to be a slave to fear. If you will look to Jesus, you'll see that death has been destroyed, that he has destroyed the one with the power of death, the devil, and that he has trampled on death like that Galilean sea. So this morning, we must look to Jesus. That's the application. It's Matthew that gives us the most detail of this story. He's the one who tells us to look at Jesus. He's the one who tells us the story of Peter. Peter sees Jesus walking on the water. Peter thinks it's a ghost. Then Jesus says, do not be afraid, it's me. And Peter, like the rest, they're all relieved. And this emotional spectrum goes from one end to the other. He goes from terrified to super interested on how Jesus is doing that. You know, this is, Peter's an eccentric guy. He's all got all this adrenaline going. He's probably really young at this point. And he says, Jesus, let me see if I can come out there and walk where you walk and do what you do. Let me come out and walk on the water with you. Let me feel what it's like to walk across the waves of death. Somehow or another, Peter steps his foot over the boat and onto the sea like it's a hardwood floor. And he begins walking towards Jesus. He begins to trample over death himself. Peter does. And this is the life I want for you all this morning. This is the life I want for you. I want you to be fearless, thanks to Jesus. I want you to be ready to die, thanks to Jesus, so that you can be ready to live for Jesus. I want you to practice a radical faith in Jesus. I want you to laugh in the face of death because you know you're with Jesus. I want you to forget all these threats of loss because you've gained Jesus. I want you to surrender your life because you get another one with Jesus. And I want you to spend this one doing what you'll do in the next one, serving Jesus, sharing Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and walking with Jesus, even in the storms. I want you to have a thrilling and risky and adventurous Christian life. That's what John wants for us. That's why he wrote about Jesus walking on the water. The storms are going to keep coming, but you keep looking to Jesus. You know the rest of the story with Peter. He takes his eyes off Jesus because the waves keep roaring. You know, when you come to Jesus, it's not like the waves just totally cease every time. It's not like, oh, no more storms in life. No, it's typically, sometimes the storms increase. He's on, you know, this ocean floor, if you will, and he's walking towards Jesus, and yeah, everything's still raging around him, and he looks to the right, looks to the left, takes his eyes off Jesus, and then he gets scared of death again, and he goes back and sinks down into fear. It happens to all of us. Perhaps some of you are there this morning. You've sunk down into fear. You can pray what Peter said. If you read the book of Matthew and you read this story, you'll see Peter cried out, Lord, save me. That's a prayer Jesus loves to answer. 
He cried out, Lord, save me. He's always willing to answer that prayer. So Jesus walks over to Peter, and he picks Peter up again, and he slings him into the boat. And perhaps that's what some of you need today. Jesus, to, to, to sling you back into the boat, to bring you back into safety with him. Perhaps some of you, you're here this morning, and just everything's scary. That's okay. That's okay. That's where Peter was, and that's where all of us are at some point. You're distracted by the problems, the storms, the fear. Rather than walking in the sea, you feel like you're drowning in it. That's okay. Today, you got another chance to cry out to the Lord. You have another chance to say, Lord, save me. You have another chance to look back to Jesus. You have another chance to be refocused on how safe you are in the gospel. We're going to take that chance to look to Jesus this morning, to look to him. We're going to do that by taking communion. We're going to remember the one who walked on water as we take communion. We're going to remember the one who walks across death, the one who died to swallow up death for all of us. And this is a chance for those of you who know, know that you're safe to confirm that to your own heart. This is a chance for those of you who perhaps you're saved, but you've sunk back into a life of fear, only fear. This is a chance for you to look to him again and be sanctified more and to be more sure that he tramples over death. Perhaps you're here and you're not saved. Why don't you right now repent of sin and call to the one who created all of this and who is going to restore all of this, who died in your place for your sins, get saved, and your first act of being a new Christian is to remember the blood and the body that bought you by taking communion with us today. Wherever you're at and whatever you need, here's the point for all of us as we take communion, is it's time for us, like Peter, to look to Jesus And if we're looking to Jesus, not even death can harm us. That's a powerful life. And that's a powerful Savior. I'll pray, and then Carter will come lead our time. Jesus, I pray for a relief and a freedom as we take communion, that your spirit would relieve people of sin and fear and guilt and shame and death, and that there would be this new hope within them that a new kingdom is coming and that until they get to that new kingdom, all they have to do is keep their eyes on you. As we celebrate your blood and your death and your resurrection and communion, may you do a work in hearts that only you can do, just like you did a work in these 12 disciples in the boat in the Sea of Galilee 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name, amen.